Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hola y bienvenidos to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jaime Sanchez Jr. Today, Dr. Deborah Cantor joins us on the podcast to discuss her new book, Chicago Católico, Making Catholic Parishes Mexican, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2020 as part of the Latinos in Chicago and the Midwest series. Cantor is the John S. Ludington Endowed Professor of History at Albion College. Deborah, welcome to New Books Latino. Hi, Mike. Thanks for uh, talking with me and thanks for your interest in the book. Before we start talking about the book, could you briefly tell us a bit about yourself and your past interests in or your past research? Uh, sure. I, I think there's two main things that are important to my backstory. One is that I am a native Chicagoan. And two, that I came to Latino history as a historian of Mexico. So, um, and those things obviously intersected with this project. Um, So, yeah, I um, was born in the city of Chicago, grew up on the edge of the city in Oak Park, Illinois, which is on an L line, which means I was in the city a lot. Um, All four of my grandparents were immigrants from Eastern Europe. Um, you know, I remember uh, having to get through conversations with my grandparents who did not speak English well and feeling a little bit disconnected from them, but always kind of having this uh, sense of, uh, of connection with immigration, even though it was, um, in my case, two generations back. Um, I went to college at the University of Michigan, and that's where I got interested in Latin American studies it was where my Spanish became um, very fluent. I went back to Chicago after college, and one of my first jobs was teaching English as a second language for the city colleges of Chicago. And um, I was on the L trains every day going to my job. Um, I was watching how quickly the city was changing. This was in the 1980s. Um Mexican neighborhoods had been more of a story of the South and Southwest side, but I was living on the far North side in Rogers park and my neighborhood all of a sudden had uh, taquerias and lavanderias and like things were changing quickly. Um, So I had my eye on this demographic change in Chicago. I went off to go to graduate school in colonial Mexican history. Um, I went to study with William B. Taylor at the University of Virginia. Um, uh, A little ironically, the first semester of grad school, I did a a tutorial with him about colonial Mexican churches. And, um, you know, it was always kind of a shared interest. I I didn't do that much with it. Um, When I was writing my dissertation, I did work in some church archives, and um, what I was trying to get at in my dissertation was um, 
how gender functioned in indigenous communities in 18th and 19th century Mexico. Um, And church records ended up being a place that had quite a bit of information. Um, But I lived in Mexico for about three, four years at that point. Um, I finished the dissertation. Eventually it became my first book, which is called Hijos del Pueblo, Gender, Family, and Community in Rural Mexico. Um, While I was doing all that work, I kept coming back and visiting Chicago and it always felt like more and more Mexicanos were there and more states were represented. Um, I was kind of, I was just sort of fascinated, you know, walking or driving around Chicago, Um, wanted to make connections between the research that I had done on colonial indigenas and who was in Chicago. And it felt like a big jump for a long time. And um, I uh, was walking in the Southwest side neighborhood of little village in Chicago, La Villita. I walked into a church, um, uh, Blessed Agnes Church, just to kind of have a look around. And it seemed super Mexicano and everybody was speaking Spanish and the Virgin of Guadalupe was up front. And then I looked up at the windows in this church and realized um, the names of the donors and all of the words on the windows were actually in Czech. And I started to think about what I knew about Chicago neighborhoods. And I realized, oh, my God, this was a Czech neighborhood 35 years ago. And um, wow, every church in this neighborhood probably wasn't Mexican once upon a time. And I decided at that point, um, maybe the story of churches would be a way to think about who immigrants to Chicago were who were these people coming from Mexico? What did it mean? Did they want to, re, you know, retain Mexicanidad? Um, what did it mean when they moved into European neighborhoods? Um, how did churches change? And I, I, I didn't really want to become a Catholic historian. I really wanted to like continue doing Mexican history, but north of the border, very far north in Chicago. And um, I guessed that churches would be a place where I would find a lot of information. They would be a locus where um, communities would meet and where identities would be on full display. And um, I went, I promised myself one week at the archives in Chicago. And, um, <laughs> and then I spent like the next two decades doing um, research and, and wrote Chicago Catolico. <laughs> quite a, quite a big uh, quite a big uh, <laughs> change in your research plan. <laughs> I, I, the other thing I would say is, like, in certain ways, I'm a very unlikely person to have written this book. Um, I I don't I don't have any formal training in like modern U.S. history, and that's you know that I think is the field that most people who do Latino history most people do come out of U.S. history. Whereas I'm trained as a Latin Americanist and um, I had to do a, a lot of catching up. And um, I also, you know, had no formal training as a historian of Catholicism and definitely not about U.S. Catholicism. And, um, you know, that's a, a, a hat that I now wear quite proudly. Um, I just got really kind of won over and fascinated by um, U.S. Catholic history thinking about it for Latinos or more generally what it tells us about um, 
immigrant history in the United States. Mm -hmm. So let's jump right in. What do Catholic churches tell us about this demographic transformation in Chicago? And more importantly, I think, how did Catholic parishes become Mexican? Um, The story goes back to like the first 10 years that Mexicans really began to settle in Chicago. Um, they came, the you know, the first ones came in, in good numbers in the World War I area, era. And I think that was, you know, especially for Americans, that was supposed to be a temporary sojourn, you know, men coming to work on the railroad during the war um, or, on, or on farms in the Midwest. Um, but by the 1920s, they were settling out in Chicago um, soon in the tens of thousands. And within... I don't know. By the by, nineteen eighteen, there was some interest in setting up a Catholic a parish for Mexicans. Um, that came out of uh, church. It was actually out of uh, Mother Cabrini. Actually, was the one who came up with that idea. Um, but by nineteen twenty four twenty five, there were two churches that were established in the two main Mexican settlements in Chicago, um, in South Chicago, which borders with Indiana, which Michael Ennis Jimenez wrote about in Steel Barrio. Um, 1924, Our Lady of Guadalupe Church was established for what was then called the Spanish speaking. And um, in 1926, St. Francis of Assisi Church was established much more in the center of the city on the near west side, which is where the University of Illinois at Chicago is. Um, and I think these churches were um, very much places of um, refugio, of refuge. Um, you had new immigrants. Um, these would have been quite young adults starting families. They didn't, many of them did not have uh, parientes with them. And I think that the church became a place where they found kind of a new kind of family, fictive kin. They found job leads. They found priests that spoke Spanish. Um, you know, I think that for many of them, the other six days of the week, they were never in a majority. Um, they were always working um, with people of many other ethnicities and living in mixed neighborhoods. But when they came to these churches on Sundays in the 1920s, this was a, you know, this was a, as though you were going back to your village in Mexico. So, como si yo fuera mi pueblo, is something which I heard many times from people. So that is the beginning of it in the 1920s. These folks have families. You get this generation in the 1940s of Mexican-Americans who also really kind of glom on to these churches. Um, and, um, and, you know, the story, obviously, of immigration is with the exception of the 1930s, every effing decade since, right? There are people coming from Mexico. There are always new immigrants. There are always people who need um, a refugio. And um, these churches, you know, become that place. And they, they serve social functions, community functions, um, as well as, of course, like devotional needs and religious needs. And um, so, you know, Chicago, the Mexican population 
again, the 1930s is a kind of a period with very little growth, maybe even some decline in the population. Um, but, you know, people really begin to come in the 1940s. And these two clusters around Our Lady of Guadalupe Church and St. Francis of Assisi, those two neighborhoods, you know, by the late 40s, they got a lot of um, Mexican people. It's hard to find apartments. Um, the numbers continue to grow in the in the 50s and in the 60s. And by that point, these two churches cannot hold all of the Mexican Catholics. Um, also, at the same time, in the late 1940s, um, Puerto Ricans are beginning to come to Chicago. And... Um, so, you know, in terms of like a, what these churches say about demography is that churches in, in different, the, the, the Latino population basically begins to disperse. It moves beyond these two clusters into other neighborhoods. And in time, especially like by about 1960, more and more Catholic churches have to consider whether they are going to add a mass that will be aimed more at Spanish-speaking people, um, and to what degree they are going to include people, um, and things things kind of um, it's kind of like the dam overflows by about 1960, and by that point, the Archdiocese of Chicago very much recognizes that the number of Spanish-speaking Catholics is really increasing. And that this is going to be pretty key to holding on to a lot of older parishes in the city of Chicago. And by the early 1960s, the Archdiocese is starting to encourage priests to learn Spanish. Um, Today, and and just, you know, kind of like fast forwarding up to where we are in 2020, at this point, I think it's about um, 40% of Catholic churches in Chicagoland offer Misa in Espanol. Um, and the lay people in Chicago are majority Latino at this point. Um, so it's, you know, it started off with two churches, two neighborhoods. And I think it's, you know, the, the story I'm telling in this book is about kind of a, a remaking of vast um, expanses of the city of Chicago becoming, you know, more Mexican neighborhoods and churches and other community institutions um, changing. Um, many community institutions that start with an older European um, immigrant group like Lithuanians or Poles um, and um, these things, these institutions, settlement houses, uh, parks, schools, churches, Eventually, in big parts of the city, these things become um, Latino. Mm. I think I got you there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, We just did 100 years of history. (laughs) No big deal. Um, You know, right away, I could tell that this was a unique take on the Catholic Church because it's a religious history, but with an emphasis on the perspective of lay people. Can you tell us more about the research process and the types of sources that you drew from? Okay. So when I got into this work, I was maybe about a year into it. I first, I started off in the archives, you know, reading any histories that did exist. I would read like parish annual reports, 
you know, what year did they start to say a mass in Spanish? What year do I see the first Hispanic surname people like in the parish records? So I spent about a year just, um, you know, working in, in sort of um, text things. I started to meet some older Mexican-American people. There was somebody who was doing an oral history project, and I was invited to assist with that for a day. And I met these, like, adorable um, Mexican Chicagoans who were, like, in their late 70s. And um, I realized I wanted to hear their stories, and they really wanted to tell their stories. And um, so then I just switched pretty quickly to, I need to start doing oral histories. Um, cause I was concerned these people are older, right? Like let's jump in and get them. And so that was kind of my next turn. And, you know, when I first started interviewing people, you know, who were very strongly associated with, um, specific parishes in Chicago, I kind of figured I was going to hear all these stories about like La Virgen de Guadalupe and like the Santitos that my mom had and blah, blah, blah. Um, what I found is the old folks, <laughs> the old timers from St. Francis CC Church, they always said to me, hey, has anybody told you about the gym? And I, at first I was like, huh, the gym? Like, what are these people talking about? Well, it turns out in the late 40s, when these people were young adults, um, one of the big Catholic, the, the biggest of the Mexican Catholic churches um, they actually organized and they built a freestanding gym, which is about the size of like half a city block. And this became their hangout. They went to, you know, the, the, the young women played volleyball and the men got together for basketball and they used the locker rooms and the showers and they went to dances on Saturday night. And yeah, they went to mass on Sunday um, but the thing that they really remembered from their youth about their parish was like, we had the gym. It was the newest building in the neighborhood. And, you know, um, we were really into sports and we had these amazing dances. And um, that, <laughs> that was not at all anything I was expecting to hear. Like this idea of a parish, you know, from their, you know, these are 70-year-old people recalling their 20s. And, you know, a lot of what they wanted to talk about was just sort of social networks. And, um, you know, I got their stories about going to church and working with the sisters and the priests. Um, but um, I, I guess I and, and as I continued to do oral histories, um, you know, they moved up into the decades. I got stories more about the 50s and the 60s um, and maybe even the 70s. Some of the stories that interested me the most, they were not about what happened in the sanctuary of the church. They were not always about priests. I was super excited to hear the stories that some of my female informants would tell me about getting involved with um, cooking for the church carnivals when they we first moved into like um, an old Polish or Lithuanian parish. They were still called the church festival, the church carnival. You know, within a decade, they became the kermes, right, as they're called in Mexico. And um, these women telling stories about like, oh, we wanted to cook the same foods that we cooked for Mexican church festivals. We wanted to make tostadas. We wanted to make, uh, you know, enchiladas and flautas, but the Polish ladies didn't like it. They just would tell these like amazing 
sort of down on the ground story about Catholic women of different ethnic groups basically fighting for turf and control in a Catholic parish of which they were all members. And it was just such a fascinating window on, you know, what kind of what social and and, and geographic spaces um, exist in a parish and what was meaningful to people. Um, I think they were, you know, most of these people I'm talking, talking with, they're people of faith and they're religious, but um, the stories often got pretty far away from talking about mass and sacraments and the Virgin of Guadalupe. And, and that was um, pretty fascinating to me. Um, and I got those stories. I got them a lot out of older Mexican-American people, but also heard stories like that for people who were newly arrived from Mexico. Um, and I also was fortunate to talk to some um, early Tejanos who settled in Chicago in like the 30s and 40s and 50s, for whom Chicago was a really big change. Let's let's talk a little bit more about that. So you mentioned the importance of the gym and the Kermes. How did the social and economic life of Mexicans develop around the St. Francis Parish, especially as more immigrants continued to settle, um, you know, from the 20s through the 40s? So that at St. Francis of Assisi, which is um, still standing um, and on the edge of the University of Illinois um, at Chicago campus, um, that was the largest settlement of Mexican people in the city of Chicago um, from the 20s to about 1960, 1962. And the only thing that is left of the Mexican neighborhood is St. Francis of Assisi. That's it. You know, there used to be panaderias and supermercados and tiendas de musica and librerias and carnicerias and everything. And there were some 40, 50,000 Mexican and Mexican-American people who lived in that neighborhood. And the sort of end of the neighborhood is really the construction of that campus um, in the early 1960s. But, um, you know, it was an older neighborhood. It's one of the oldest neighborhoods in Chicago. Um, you know, for people who are not really familiar with Chicago, it's a neighborhood, the near west side, which is kind of like the lower east side of New York. You know, it was a sort of a port of first entry neighborhood for immigrant groups from many different places, Greeks, Jews, uh, Czechs, African-Americans. Um, so Mexicans were not the majority of the neighborhood, but they were a big clump by the World War II period in that neighborhood. And it was a neighborhood that was really well situated for employment. There were a lot of Mexican men who worked in the railways and the rail yards were, you know, they started half a mile away and went all the way to downtown. And this neighborhood is maybe a mile, mile and a half to the loop in Chicago. Um, people were also able to get jobs um, working in the loop, for example, working in hotel um, kitchens and bakeries and housekeeping, a um, lot of factory jobs of different types in that neighborhood. One of my favorite little details was that uh, the Cracker Jack factory was like 
uh, would run ads in Spanish. They were always looking for uh, new arrivals to go work in the candy factory. And there is this whole weird little tradition in Chicago of um, Mexicanos working in um, candy factories. Chicago had a ton of them. Um, And uh, so people were, you know, they had jobs. Um, They had apartments in this neighborhood. They were pretty tightly packed together. Uh, the kids played out on the stoop. Um, families who were not related acted like they were tios and tias. Uh, and they were like godparents to each other for baptisms and weddings and all of that. Um, they interacted with especially Italians in the neighborhood. Um, so, you know, in terms of socioeconomic life, You know, a lot of people, a lot of people very devoted to that church. The church was able to do a lot of renovations in the 1940s. This was a church that went back to the 1870s. Um, And, you know, when they needed a new um, heating system, they were able to raise that money. uh, No problem, because, uh, you know, people were packed into that church every weekend. There were like... Seven, eight, nine masses every weekend, and they were full. Um, and um, people were very, very supportive of the church. Um, you know, they built a uh, they built a new school for students. There was a Catholic school there um, with mostly Mexican kids. There was a fire that burned down the school. They were able to rebuild the school in like a year because the fundraising efforts were so good. And also the, I would say one other thing, you know, in terms of like finances and what sort of kept St. Francis of Assisi going um, across the middle of the 20th century, the priests who served Mexican people from the twenties through the sixties are um, a member of a Catholic order called the Claritian missionary fathers. They had originally come up from Mexico and then to Texas and then they made their way to Chicago in the 20s. Um, the Coloration Fathers were incredible champions of um, Mexicans, of uh, immigrants, of um, working people. And they were very creative and very active fundraisers. Um, and um, so why these, you know, people were on basically working poor salaries. But I think sort of together as a community in the church, they were able to um, have a, you know, quite a lovely place that was their parish with a lot of activities. And it became kind of a stepping stone to jobs that often paid better. The, the children who were raised in that neighborhood who attended high schools in Chicago, both public and Catholic high schools, um, most, I would say in the 40s, most of them were actually graduating from high school. Very few of them went past high school. There's no question in the 1940s. But the guys, the young men, you know, a lot of them got jobs working for the city of Chicago. They got, you know, they became police officers. They became firefighters, um, other kinds of city jobs. You know, they had good benefits. And you have this, you know, and it's because of their connections, I think, with that parish and with that, the Claritian Missionary Fathers that got them connected in with other, like, um, other Catholic people. You know, it was like the Irish were basically running the Chicago police. And um, 
many of the first Latino officers uh, came out of St. Francis and it was out of that kind of network. And they, you know, their parents were working poor immigrants and these kids raised in Chicago, you know, they sort of enter a lower middle class. And uh, I think a lot of it had to do, you know, with access to education and, and, and the kind of pull and the network of being part of a Catholic parish. It's interesting that you mentioned the U.S.-born Mexican-Americans that were basically raised in this parish, because the book frequently points to a persistent contradiction in Chicago's Catholic churches, which I think simultaneously served as sites of both Americanization on one hand and the development of ethnic Mexican identity or Mexicanidad on the other. You Walk us through how these forces interacted and how they differed in impact across not just the generational divides, but also the U.S.-born and recent arrival divide. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the recent arrivals, and we could say this for, you know, people who came in 1925 or people who came in 1945 or 65, most people who came straight from Mexico, they came from rural areas, right? They came from pueblos, they came from ranchos. A lot of them were Catholic, but a lot of them did not have regular access to um, the equivalent of a parish church. If you live on a rancho, you know, it might be like a seven mile walk into, you know, the parroquia in, you know, from your rancho in Jalisco or Michoacan. And people couldn't go all the time. They couldn't, you know, they, they weren't necessarily regular mass attenders. Um, and children's sort of Catholic education, familiar, familiarity with the catechism might be a little weak. Well, when they go to Chicago, the Catholic churches are like everywhere. It's, they're pretty hard to miss. If you live near St. Francis, if you live within a mile of it, well, of course, you could attend mass on a regular basis. And, you know, like I think from a, uh, like a modern perspective, we think of like regular mass attendance as going every week. Well, Catholics in the United States um, before Vatican II, which is like in the early 1960s, a lot of Catholics in the United States are trying to take communion like as often as they can. There are people who attended mass every day. There was um, there were like two masses every weekday at St. Francis, two, three, maybe Um, some people would go on their lunch break. And um, so I think one of the things that happens for these new arrivals from Mexico, um, their worship was maybe a little more based home based back in rural Mexico. And when they're in a Chicago parish full of Mexicans. Um, they get more involved, I think, with the sacraments. They attend more often. Um, they are introduced to devotions that they would not have known about back in Mexico. Um, there was a very prominent Our Lady of Guadalupe um, at St. Francis Church. Um, but, you know, newly arrived Mexicans, they also got to know um, Our Lady of Fatima in the late 40s and 50s, who was a tremendously popular Catholic devotion 
in um, Europe and the United States and very tied to like anti-communism. When Our Lady of Fatima comes to visit at St. Francis, it was like a big traveling like statue um, uh, version of, of Fatima, you know, the church in, in St. Francis was absolutely packed with people. Everybody came out to see her. This is something they wouldn't have known about from their little towns in Mexico. Um, so one of the things I think is for like the Mexican, the immigrants from Mexico, they're kind of learning how to be Catholic in a more American way, in a more urban way. Um, and, uh, you know, regularly donating to the church, the collection baskets, um, going around, uh, the men get involved with clubs like the Holy Name or the Santo Nombre. Um, many men want to volunteer to be what were called usheres. And I, I'm very struck by the use of that word, ushers. So, but the way it was always written, it was spelled like it was Spanish, U-I... J-E-R-E-S, usheres. So, you know, like this was like a very honorable thing to be an usher. And especially this meant that you were involved in um, distributing the collection basket um, during the mass. Um, And uh, I don't think these were practices that people would have been participating in very much in Mexico. Um, Their kids on the other hand, um, they're learning to be Catholics, like other Chicago Catholics. Um, if they are dealing, if they're going to Catholic school, the nuns are not Mexican. They're being spoken to in English. They're not really being encouraged to speak Spanish. They're not learning like Spanish Catholic hymns at Catholic school. Um, I, the, I don't, there were a lot of th- the children's public upbringing playing baseball, their Catholic schooling education or their Chicago public schooling education, you know, was always English in, in public. These, they were definitely bilingual, but Spanish was really more for home. And um, these kids, you know, they all had Hispanic names, Almendares, Rodriguez, uh, Gonzalez. Um, but, you know, in lots of ways, you know, their parents were immigrants, but these kids were really Chicagoans. I think they were kind of Chicagoans first. And uh, the parish was, you know, the idea that one of your big associations of the parish is being on the parish baseball team. <laughs> like there were, and, and that girls would learn to play on the parish baseball team. They play on the St. Francis Cobras girls baseball team. They're Primas back in Mexico, there was no way those girls were playing sports. That wasn't going to come for a couple more decades. Um, So I think, you know, kind of surprisingly at a Mexican church, for young people, it was a place to be super American. Um, At the same time, they do talent shows and fundraisers where they would bring in Mexican singers and they would do baile folklorico. I I feel like in the end, in like the 40s and 50s, the, the young folks are kind of, they're going back and forth. So, you know, there's baseball and there's baile folclorico. Um, they're celebrating um, Mexican Independence Day. Um, they're doing Dieciséis de Septiembre. There's a big parade. But what's one of the, where does the parade end up? It ends up at the Lakefront Park, Grant Park. And there's a big baseball tournament, which is not really how I think about people 
celebrating Dieciseis de Septiembre. Um, so I think for the young people, it's kind of a, a mishmash. Right. They're, I mean, they're really becoming Mexican and American at the same time. Yes. And I, I was, <laughs> I actually was invited to a, um, an annual like a gala dinner from a club that came out of St. Francis. It's a fraternal organization called the St. Francis Wildcats. And once upon a time, like in the forties, you know, there was the St. Francis Wildcats baseball team and basketball team. And, um, they became a fraternal organization and they raised money for like Hispanic college students and they have an annual golf outing. So I was invited to their gala dinner at, a uh, what do we call it? Like a banquete's place. And they asked me to say a little bit to them. And these are people like basically 60 to 90 years old who had grown up at St. Francis. And my big line with them was that the people at St. Francis had grown up Mexican, American, and Catholic. And all of a sudden I was met with thunderous applause. Like they just thought I had nailed who they were, Mexican, American, and Catholic. So. Wow. Well. That that was my shining moment. (laughs) I mean, when you know them, you know them. (laughs) Um, And so by the 1960s, like you mentioned earlier with the construction of UIC, the, the University of Illinois campus in Chicago, uh, urban renewal and the general expansion of the Latino population in Chicago leaves a lot of people somewhat far away from the original Mexican parishes. Um, what happens when Mexicans move into uh, other neighborhoods, particularly the Pilsen neighborhood? And they start attending Polish and Slavic parishes. Um, Good question. And like a really, you know, this is the beginning of the phenomenon that is really apparent all over Chicago today, right? Like we go from having two Mexican neighborhoods to like 50% of the city is more or less Mexicano. Um, So yeah, the Pilsen neighborhood, which is well known by a lot of people today, um, I forget which magazine like two years ago called it one of the 10 hottest neighborhoods in the world. So it's a hot neighborhood. It's a hot neighborhood facing gentrification. Um, in the, in the early 1950s, people of Mexican origin begin to move into this Pilsen neighborhood. This is about a mile South of St. Francis. And um, it's a neighborhood that was known as like little Bohemia it was a neighborhood that was known as being very Polish, uh, but there were also Croatians and, and, and um, Slovaks and Lithuanians. There were 13 different churches in the Pilsen neighborhood, and um, they mostly belonged to specific Eastern European groups. And the, all the clubs that existed at these churches were clubs that basically functioned, especially for the older people, you know, they functioned in the language of the old country. Um, And um, so people, you know, the church down the block belongs to the Polacos, which the Mexican arrivals called them, whether they were Czech, Lithuanian or Polish, they were all Polacos in Chicago. And, uh, you know, I think it's kind of tentative. They, you know, it's cold in Chicago 
And sometimes you just want to go, if you want to go to mass or you want to light a candle, you go to the church that's two blocks away instead of waiting for the streetcar and transferring to a bus and going to St. Francis. So people sort of begin to go to these neighborhood churches. Um, and uh, they're a lot younger than the, Europe, the Eastern European people whose parishes they are. Um, they have kids with them. Um, one um, amazing Tejana who I interviewed who moved to Pilsen in this neighborhood, she would go with her um, baby daughter to mass at a Czech parish. And she always had the feeling that the Czech people were like looking down on her or were angry at her because her baby would make noise, right? She's basically in a church with a lot of older folks and she's the one with the baby who's fussy. Um, she didn't feel super comfortable there, right? Everything that was happening in that church would have been happening in Latin, English, and Czech, right? And she spoke Spanish her whole life. Um, but the key thing, I think, to breaking into these parishes was when people decided, or the people that decided to spend the extra money and send their kids to Catholic school. Um, and, um, you have a lot of parishes that quite quickly, you know, the majority of students in the parish school are Mexican American kids. Um, and the priests and the sisters want to keep the schools open. They are willing to enroll these children. As I, as I tell in Chicago Catolico, those Polish and Lithuanian parishes, they are not willing to enroll African-American children. They always send those parents away. They always find some parish in another neighborhood and tell the parents they have to send their kids there. They do not turn away the Mexican children. They enroll them and they take the tuition money from the parents. And, um, you know, you have kids who just like they start to grow up at St. Procopius Czech Parish. They grow up at Providence of God, Lithuanian Parish. You've got years where you really have overlapping populations in these schools. Um, Providence of God, which is one of Chicago's oldest Lithuanian churches, um, in the 1950s and 60s and into the 70s, that school was very mixed. Um, you know, good numbers of Lithuanian families stayed in the neighborhood and continued to send their kids to the parochial school, and, you know, they became classmates and friends with Mexican-American families um, and kids in the neighborhood. 